Peace, family. Welcome to another episode of The Foundation. On episode 15 of The Foundation, we catch up with Ulysses Youngblood, who is currently a professor teaching entrepreneurship and innovation, as well as cannabis education at Clark University, located in Worcester, Massachusetts. Ulysses provides us first with a little background about himself and then how he built his professional and business career in teaching as well as the cannabis industry. Ulysses' story is packed with instances where he had to overcome adversity beginning early in childhood when he was in school with multiple learning disabilities such as dyslexia, selective hearing, and ADHD. The struggles didn't end there, though. Ulysses graduated from high school with a sixth grade reading level, and although Ulysses did make it to college, he was unfortunately kicked out of school after police detected an aroma of marijuana in his dorm. But this did not stop Ulysses. He began a tumultuous seven college journey. Yes, he actually attended seven different colleges, ultimately culminating in him achieving an MBA in business from Northeastern University located in Boston. At the same time, though, Ulysses also co-founded a social impact cannabis company called Major Bloom, which is an organization focused on introducing more economic empowerment of minorities in the cannabis industry. Ulysses provides us detailed instructions on how to overcome both educational and social challenges many young people face today and how to give back to your community. He lays out the blueprint for becoming a professor as well as getting involved in the cannabis industry and provides a lot of information about how the, in the cannabis industry you may not be aware of. My favorite theme of the interview was the unrelenting spirit of Ulysses, evidenced by all the adversity he overcame and the fact that he is still so positive and genuinely empathic today. See if there's anything from Ulysses' story that you could take and possibly build for your own foundation. Until next time, family, keep building. Peace. All right, family, welcome to another episode of The Foundation. On today's episode, we got Ulysses Youngblood, who is a professor who teaches entrepreneurship and innovation at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. He's also the co-founder and president of Major Bloom, which is a social impact cannabis company based out of Massachusetts. Ulysses also um, was he graduated high school with a sixth grade reading level. So to really show you how, how you know, useful and resourceful this guy is to graduate, um, you know, high school with a sixth grade reading level and turn that into what he has done today, Ulysses is going to show us how to build um, a foundation and being a professor. Um, and, you know, you could take a, a bunch of tools from what he has to say. I kind of talked to him a little bit before this, so I know it's going to be um, some great gems he's dropped. But, um, you know, without further ado, let's get into it. So what's up, uh, Ulysses? How you doing today? Yo, Jameer, happy to be here, bro. Appreciate the introduction, man. And, yeah, man, just like I said, happy to be here. So. Man, nah, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm hyped to finally get, uh, you know, be able to sit down and kind of get this done because, you know, we kind of been talking about it for a while. So, um, you know, kind of just give the people, you know, a little bit of a, a foundation about who Ulysses is as a person. What was, you know, 
childhood growing up in, in Massachusetts and stuff like that. Absolutely. So slight correction there. I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Oh, okay. My bad. No, no, it's all good. Then I moved to Worcester at 18 to play ball, as we said, you know, okay. play ball in college. Um, and I, I went to Assumption College. And uh, I lasted there probably a year and a half. I got in some trouble and uh -huh. didn't end up finishing playing ball there, didn't end up graduating from there. But ultimately, because of the foundation I had and the strong support, I ended up finishing college. So uh -huh. I went to uh, Sacred Heart back in Fairfield, Connecticut, where I finished my undergraduate uh, schooling and then went to graduate school back here in Massachusetts at, in Boston at Northeastern, where I got my MBA. So I did all that. And as you had mentioned, uh, you know, just as a kid, man, school was not easy for me. But I will say that, like, one of the biggest things is having a strong supporting system. So my mom was a big proponent of that when she found out that, you know, I had bunch of learning disabilities, including uh, ADHD, uh, dyslexia, selective hearing, you know, all that kind of just bundled up. She was just, you know, making sure that I was on top of my, my, my game and like, you know, both my social life and, and both, you know, in school. So uh, I would say she's the biggest resource I had. And then also just, you know, being able to work with the school resources and the, uh, the special education teachers um, which was a big, uh, you know, help in my, in my earlier career and then also in my college career as well. All right. So talk about, you mentioned, you know, your learning disability. Um, when was it, like, when did you notice that you have a learning disability? When did things kind of get different from you, for you in school? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was always social, man. I remember back, you know, four, um, you being four or five years old, just talking to a lot of kids in preschool and kindergarten and just being social with everybody. But when it came down to actually sitting down in class, the, uh -huh. everything just didn't resonate with me like it did for other kids. Uh -huh. So at that point, my mom, I think I was nine years old in the fourth grade, I got went to Yale because we, like I said, I grew up in Connecticut. So we went there to go see a bunch of, uh, you know, child therapists and, uh, you know, uh, those who study, you know, children with disabilities and they diagnosed me when I was nine. Um, and at the time, I was living in a, um, a city called Naugatuck, Connecticut, which the school system, they actually just wanted to keep me back. And they weren't too familiar with the learning disability at the time. It's around the time when uh, the uh, No Child Left Behind policy got instituted, I want to say federally. It was the early uh, mid-90s. And uh, essentially, they didn't know what to do with me there. So then my mom ended up moving us to a better school system. And that's where things started to click a little bit more with the resources that I had. Hmm. Now, um, you know, with this learning disability and, and going through high school, um, did that ever, you know, was it a big thing going through high school or were, was it kind of something you was able to kind of shield? Because um, I know you said you played sports. So were, yeah. was, it, was it easy to kind of shield that because you could, you know, hide behind the sports? Yeah, man. I mean, when you're able to outrun the entire school, <laughs> lift more weights than the biggest dude in the school, no yeah. one doesn't care if you can't read. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, That's so It was honestly a scapegoat. And uh, that became a challenge later on in life when I couldn't, you know, didn't make it to the league, you know what I mean? Because I had to adjust my life. But yeah. I would say the sports was the biggest proponent of that, me being you know, socially accepted, uh, you know, being okay with who I am, because I knew that there was something that I had that was different than other kids, even if it wasn't, you know, being able to read passages in class, yeah. or you know, finish homework on time with a good grade. Uh -huh. So how did you kind of 
navigate, all right, you know, you graduate in high school. I mean, you know, you can only read a sixth grade reading level. Um, how did you, how are you thinking about college now? Um, you know, I know you went to college to play football. So, you know, maybe the education thing wasn't too crazy on your mind, mm -hmm. but you know, what was going through your head, you know, kind of reassessing life at that point. Absolutely. So it wasn't just reading, man. So even when I got to college, you're familiar with Clearinghouse. You know, my grades weren't that great. And it's not like I wasn't trying. It's just that I, you know, it wasn't that, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't apply to me like other subjects, like a, like a business when I got to college and I really, you know, understood it. So just the basic stuff that they gave us at that time, my grade, my GPA wasn't that great. My SAT scores were horrible. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to college and was ready to play football, you know, probably like two weeks before the season started, the Clarenhouse was like, yo, his grades and his SATs from high school is not enough for him to play. So that allowed me to sit out a year and really uh, get a perspective on like, you know, kind of what I wanted to do with life and, you know, how I was going to get through college. And I spent a lot of time hanging with friends and, and having fun. Yeah. Um, but I did also make a good network of people. So that's both on the administrative level and then just like gaining, like gaining my network from people that grew up in Massachusetts or in different states and like, you know, the college experience, people yeah. come from different places. So I would say that that's where I really thrive was really like, you know, perfecting my networking skills. And it still wasn't the classroom time up until, believe it or not, I had a girlfriend who was uh, an excellent writer, man. So she would help me with all my papers uh -huh. and she's still a writer now. She works for a newspaper here in Massachusetts. Oh, really? Uh, it didn't work out with her. I ended up meeting my wife, who's actually a special education teacher. Okay, <laughs> now she has been for the past 11 years, but also she was a great writer and helped me kind of get through school then. Um, so yeah, just honestly, man, just taking advantage of the resources that are in front of you. So now, right, um, talking about kind of, because we kind of talked about this before. So, you know, you went into college and you had that, you know, you know, the, the dream. We all got the dream. Absolutely. You go to the league, league die, everything like that. So talk about, um, you know, I, I know you said that you kind of had an injury, um, which I had an injury as well. Mm -hmm. Talk about how, um, how was life like after that? Now, you know, you get your injury or you kind of feel as though, you know, it might be over for football. What was your thoughts going through your head at, at that point? Man, that's a great question. And it, it's all, everything's cyclical. It's all full circle, man. I, um, you know, I, as, a, as a kid of the culture, I hung around with athletes and weed smokers. <laughs> you know? yeah. So back home, they were parallel track. You know, people who yeah. normally had a lot of weed, they were athletes and they were known. So, like, you know, that was kind of the core group I was with. So as I, you know, kind of ended my college career, I started uh, – you know, trying to assess and figure out what I wanted to do. So still being involved with certain things uh, like music, um, um, you know, uh, friends who rapped. I thought I wanted to be a rapper, just like some of my friends who were rapping at the time. Um, so, you know, fast forward a couple of years, um, I, I realized that that's not really a big passion of mine. So I, I, but the biggest thing I took away from that, but it actually got me to start writing. So that's when I started writing a lot. Um, so even now to this day, I write uh, pretty often just as a business blogger about the business, the cannabis business that I'm in now. So I look at everything happening for a reason. I felt, you know, at the time when I had stopped, uh, got injured and, you know, stopped playing football, I realized that it wasn't like a good, it wasn't necessarily a good look uh, for me to kind of go on that path. And I, I felt like it wasn't, 
you know, it wasn't, I didn't want to force it. I didn't want to like keep trying um, when I felt like it wasn't, you know, set out for me to be. So I had to keep trying other things, to be honest with you. So um, even though I'm not making music and rapping now, it did lead me to the path of, of writing and, and it's something that I enjoy now. All right, man, that's that's dope. So, right, talk about you. I know you talked about you kind of ran into a little adversity or, you know, got into some, some stuff at in college. Yeah. Can you kind of tell us about, is that, you know, something that you could tell us about? Oh, of course, man, I'm happy to. So, as I mentioned, athletes, marijuana, it's a big thing in high school, college too. So I ended up going to college with a good friend of mine from home. And ironically enough, him and a bunch of our, uh, our buddies from school had got, our buddies from the football team had gotten some trouble in a week, a weekend that I wasn't there. So uh, they got in some, some big, some big, big trouble. We're talking okay. like, yeah, some big trouble. So because I was associated with those guys, I had a target on my back, even more so. Assumption College, 2,000, 3,000 students. Yes, Most of the black and brown students there play sports. Yes, so there's sir. that target. And then you put in the, the target of actually getting in some trouble, like yes. real trouble. That's the target for my group, too. So um, what happened was I basically came back from an L ride. My room was smelling like weed. And uh, the RA or the campus police knocked on my door. Mm -hmm. So they searched my apartment or they searched my dorm. They didn't find any weed. But ultimately, they ended up kicking me off campus because it smelled like weed in my dorm room. Wow. So, exactly, man. So meanwhile, I got kids next door crushing Bud Lights. Yeah. And they, you know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with that. But because I have the aroma of marijuana, they want to kick me off campus. The smell. The smell, man. Yeah. So that ended up leading me to living off campus for my second year of college. And I got in even more trouble there because now <laughs> I got the target of just being a young black kid in the city of Worcester, the second largest city in New England next to Boston. And the cops already have a bad, you know, rep, you know, in this in this neighborhood in the, in the city because it's not very diverse. A lot of white, a lot of white cops here. So especially for a diverse city. So, you know, again, friends playing sports, having people at my crib, and what happens, the Worcester police show up at some point after, actually after football season ended my second year. And I get my house raided, um, you know, I get arrested. Um, and yeah, it just led down a, a crazy path of me actually getting arrested a couple months later again. Wow. My house searched. But this time, the second time I got arrested for really disturbing the peace because they said that we were making too much noise, me and rowdy college kids. But ultimately, um, the second time I got I got beat up by the police, um, and this is me. This is actually <laughs> on my 20th birthday, man. And I had a I had a, a little party at my crib for my 20th birthday. Uh -huh. So uh, what what ended up happening is uh, they asked all everybody to leave. So maybe like the 20, 30, 40 people that were there, everybody left, and they asked me to come out back. And I'm thinking they wanted to talk to me. What happened is they ended up jumping me, and that was one of the toughest things that I had to deal with because at home you're known. You know, for playing basketball, for baseball, football, you know, being social. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't deal with cops in that capacity because I was, I was known then. But when I moved to Worcester and I'm an adult, a man, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just in the city, you know what I mean? Yeah. Then that's, that's when it gets real. Cause you, yeah, man. And it was, it was a tough thing that I had to deal with, but ultimately that all ended up happening before, um, before I had, thought I wanted to be a rapper <laughs> but I took that energy man I'm telling you I took that energy and I started to write my feelings down and like I needed to express myself because it was a tough it was a tough thing to deal with wow I mean yeah you kind of you kind of talked about a lot there but I think you know even from going you know to having being kicked off a of campus for an aroma 
um, to now, you know, being beat, being beat up by the police. You know, like, um, I, I kind of can see that creating a crazy weight and you're, you're away from home. So it's not like you're in a place where you're comfortable or familiar. Right. Um, what kind of, where, where did you kind of find the strength at, at that time? Cause it's, it seems like that might've been a low point for right. you. Like, where did you kind of find the strength to say, all right, I got to kind of make a change or kind of figure out what, what I'm going to do um, regardless. Right. So this was, this was all around when uh, Obama was president. So this is like 07, 08. So I'm noticing the political climate, climate change a little bit. Um, and aside from like what's going on externally there, I'm going back to my mom. She was like, no matter what, you're staying in school. So believe it or not, I ended up, I ended up going to like seven different colleges in my entire career. I did a couple of seven different colleges. Yo, wait, hold on. Real quick, what's the list of the seven? <laughs> yeah. So I started off at Assumption and got kicked out of there. Then I went to QCC, which is Quinn Sigamon College. And I went there for a semester. And that's actually right down the street from, from the shop. Um, and then I ended up going to, where did I go from there? I went to Southern Connecticut State from there. And I, I tried out for the baseball team there. Uh-huh. And I ended up, they didn't, I, didn't get, I didn't make it, but I, I didn't play baseball up, uh, in high school. So I was a little rusty, but it was still, you know, something I was good at as a kid. So I figured, and this is what this is what I, what helped me cope was trying new things. That's what I'm saying. This like, like who goes and I'm gonna just try to play baseball. I haven't played baseball since you know elementary school. Let me just try to walk <laughs> over. Like what? Yeah, but that's what I, that's what I needed to help cope, bro. So I I did that. Um, and then I ended up getting kicked out of Southern too. Uh-huh. I got kicked out of Southern for grades, and then I went to um, where did I go after that? I went to Gateway Community College in Norwalk. So now that's our Norwalk in New Haven. So that's that's four four different universities, and then so I'm from I'm from like I said Bridgeport Bridgeport Connecticut. So I moved back home after I got kicked out of uh, New Haven. Okay. I had an apartment up there, and my mom was like, "All right, come back home." So then I go to Housatonic, Housatonic's in Bridgeport, another community college. Uh-huh. So I went there for maybe two semesters, and then I ended up landing at uh, Sacred Heart where I graduated. And the only reason I went there is because my mom went there, to be honest with you. Oh, really? She was a nurse for uh, her entire career and uh, decided to get her RN. And we ended up, ironically enough, graduating together on Mother's Day in 2012. <laughs> wow. Yo, that's the a, that's a dopest thing I heard in a while, man. Like, you got to graduate with your mom on Mother's Day, yo? Yeah. yeah it was I know that, that experience had to be crazy, right? It was cool. It was definitely cool because she was, again, she was part of the biggest reasons why I, like, you know, didn't, why I finished school and why I didn't drop out. Otherwise, I probably would have, like, pursued a career rap or it's like so you know what I mean it's like something crazy like doing some retail shit or yeah um, so I mean like all right so you go in this carousel of colleges you know the college carousel you all through this when do you kind of figure out like all right now I want to start um being involved you know like in a serious capacity um you know in the cannabis industry or or whatever you started out before yeah um, that's a great question. So part of my, my upbringing and is big shout out to my dad because uh, my dad, you know, he had his, he wasn't, uh, uh, he ran into some trouble when he was, when he was younger and he really turned his life around. Like when, when I was born, to be honest with you, he worked for UPS and he still does. He's nice. been there for almost 35 years. Um, so part of, part of him, when I was a teenager, he had started a business for me uh, to ha- kind of help him run it. 
So I did that from the age of 13 up until I went to college and when I moved home from college. And then kind of backtracking to what I had mentioned, when I moved from New Haven back home, I essentially helped them run that business too. Um, so to your question, like what did I realize? I realized that like you can study business, you can study business in college. And that's exactly what happened because, you know, from helping my dad run a family business, you know, from my teenage years throughout college a bit, I realized that you can formalize that experience and that information in a setting where, you know, you can ultimately get a degree in it. And yeah. that's actually when things started to click is when I took business classes. Oh, so, all right. So kind of you had the, the real life application before, you know, like taking a class where, you know, your first introduction to business wasn't a business course, but it was right. actually business. So you was, you was coming from, you know, a reverse perspective. Now, when did you, take that into the education and start taking those uh, business classes? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, as a professor today, I tell this to my students now, you do not have to know what you want to do for the rest of your life, especially if you're, you know, 19, 18, 19, 20, because I, I didn't declare my major until I was 22. And most kids are graduating by then. Yeah. But it, it really took my mom, and I'm going to keep it real, it took my mom to say, hey, you, you can study what you're, what you're doing now, what you have been doing, and that's business. And I, I honestly had no, I didn't, I didn't know. It took me four, like four years of, you know, some full-time and part-time college to realize that, like, you can, there's a correlation between what you learn in the classroom and, like, what the external world is of business. So, yeah, it was 22 years old when I started taking my first business classes, and I never looked back from that. All right, so you start taking these business classes. Um, what's kind of your first, um, you know, taste of getting in uh, the professional world or, you know, this, this type of industry that you're in today? Absolutely. So my first taste is definitely a kid of the culture. <laughs> yeah, just growing up around it. I will say from working my family business, I had a lot of discipline, you know, basically running job sites. Uh -huh. And with that, with that, Freedom of, uh, you know, with that discipline of running job sites as a kid, I had a lot of freedom too. So without doubt, like, damn near always had weed on me. Like, throughout yeah. the summer, you know, power washing houses, you know, locally around the, around the, around the neighborhood and stuff. Yeah. Uh, that, that, to me, is more of a culture thing rather than an industry thing. Because uh -huh. then what I started to realize around, again, President Obama's administration, me getting kicked off, uh, getting kicked out of two colleges at this point, and really trying to assess what I wanted to do my, with my life, I realized that in Massachusetts, they had just decriminalized. And that uh, coming, up when, uh, coming up in 2012 was, was medical cannabis. So then, back in 2008, and this is, mind you, when I got kicked off campus, that was 2006. So uh, in the back of my mind, like, people were talking, like, oh, cannabis might be legal. Cannabis might be legal. So there's these different, like, external factors that you hear, you hear, and you repeat it, and you hear, and you hear it, and then you start to take notice of it. So I would say, like, I really, by 2012, I realized that there's this potential uh, career path in it. Uh -huh. And that's when I really started to dial in and, and really focus in. All right. So um, you started to kind of, you know, build the major bloom, um, you know, company. Now, kind of talk a little bit about that, um, you know, and the mission statement that, that you guys kind of, you know, project and, you know, encourage. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, a part of it is that, the, you know, with, with Lori, my business partner and I, there's not a lot of people out in this market, in this industry that are like us, you know, black business owners. At the core is black culture. So what we see is we know that the historic rates, especially in New Jersey and New York, 
are exponentially disproportionate. Black and brown people get arrested, you know, in some counties in, in New Jersey, 18 times more than white people. Across eight, 18 times. In some, in Jersey's the worst. Jersey's the worst, bro. In, yep, some counties in New Jersey, bro. Wow. Across the nation, across the nation, it's about four to five times as much. So when we look at the statistics of who's getting arrested and criminalized, and then we compare it to who's getting licensed and who's profiting off of it, it doesn't look the same. It's mostly white male on on the license and the profit side, and the criminalization is black males. Mm. You know what I mean? On on that side. So (laughs) that's the big motivating factor for me is that, like, I wanted to get into the industry, and I didn't see myself. And I would reach out to these executives at cannabis companies and they wouldn't give me the time of day. So now I'm like, all right, I'm going to create this for my own. And that's when that was after I finished business school in 2016 and just really pretty much just grinding out since. Wow. All right. So kind of talk about how, um, you know, after, you know, creating this, this program um, that you guys initiated, where um, did you kind of, go and say, all right, this is some stuff that is great knowledge. And, you know, you, you create a corporation or a company to kind of fight that. But where was it like, all right, I kind of could see the value in becoming a professor and, you know, disseminating this information, you know, educationally as well. Absolutely. So likewise with the business courses, one of my favorite professors and early on, he was, a, he was a business law class and he was a lawyer. And he was so authentic because he worked in the field uh-huh. and he did the teaching part-time. So I'm an adjunct professor. Okay. And it was way different than any other professor I had because most of them were tenured. And this is no shot at tenured, like, you know, PhD professors. But when you're actually working in the field and you can relate that to the classroom, I feel like that's more tangible. Everyone learns differently. Again, I have dyslexia. I don't like textbooks. I want to hear directly what you're working on. You know what I mean? And how I can relate that to the real world. And it comes from real world experience. So uh, that was, that was my time at Housatonic when I was back home in Bridgeport that I was like, you know what? I like this. I like this dude. I like what he's doing. And maybe there's potential for me to do the same. So um, yeah, I've always had that. I want to say probably since like 2010 or 12 that like, Hey, if I were to go get my, my master's degree, then I want to, I want to double back and share information that I've gained from my working experience. Now, in, in your, you know, in your experience as a teacher, um, I know you kind of just talked about different learning styles. Now, do you kind of see that with your own students um, that some students might be, you know, um, you know, different archetypes where they respond to instruction, motivation and different things? Um, what are some kind of the, the most common archetypes or stuff that you kind of, you know, come in contact yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, I tell all my, te- all my students, I don't give standardized testing. The standardized testing does not measure your knowledge. It measures how much you can remember. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like your SAT, you know what I mean? Right. Like IQ test. Like that doesn't mean how smart you are because you need to learn how to talk to people and interact with people. That's more important than like filling in a bubble. So that's first and foremost, especially as the semester just started this week, I tell them that I don't give standardized testing. I'm more concerned about how you interact with other people and then also how you interact with me. If you need help with something, ask me. (laughs) I'm an open book. There shouldn't shouldn't be like this point of confusion. You know, you got to use the resources that are around you. So I think, um, especially since I teach in an entrepreneurship uh, school, uh, like school and a school of management, a lot of the students are on the mindset that like they have to have it all figured out. And I think I, I might've mentioned this to you before. So like just yesterday, I got a pitch from a, a 19 year old student who wants to start a magazine and like, 
it was kind of all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, you don't have to have it all figured out right now. Like, you know, don't try to rush into things. So I see that a lot that like kids, they want, especially from this generation. I mean, growing up in the political climates that we're in, they, they literally want to save the world. And they, they care a lot more about things you know, uh, that's going on, then I, I personally did at 18 or 19 years old or 20 years old. I was smoking weed playing sports, bro. Trying to have parties at my crib. And these guys are trying to start, solve like global warming issues and like, you know, ra racial issues. And I respect that a lot. It's just that it's all, it's baby steps. You gotta, you gotta have a foundation. You gotta, you know, work towards it. It's not like all at one time. So yeah. that's one of the big things I tell most of the students and I see most common is that they wanna solve all the world issues in like, you know, tomorrow, today, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, I, to be, you know, if I wanted to be a professor as well, right? Like kind of how would you, you know, coach me as, you know, going through, um, getting a class, like, you know, you get assigned this class. Now, how do you go about creating a lesson plan, creating a, you know, a syllabus, that type of thing. Absolutely. And that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, Cause I, I'm in the middle of actually just, so I developed the class this summer, social equity cl uh, class in cannabis. And that was the first time I actually developed my own syllabus in my own class. The other two, um, you know, basically administrators in the program, they looked at my background and said, Oh, these classes will fit well. So I teach uh, art of the pitch, which is more or less a sales class. And then I teach uh, another class in the entrepreneurship. It's more like team building and like, you know, creating a movement is the title. So um, I think the most important thing is to know the material. Mm. I think, uh, and, and I mean that from the perspective of actually having that uh, experience. Mm. And um, the, reason, the reason being is because it's, it comes a lot natural and a lot easier if it's something that you're passionate about and it's something that you have a lot of experience about. Like, I'm sure I can study, I don't know, a book on political science and maybe teach a political science class but I'm, that's something I'm not interested in. <laughs> yeah, so, so the energy when you're teaching is going to be a lot different anyway. Right, absolutely. In addition to, so not only my past experience, but something that I'm going through now. Like, I am an entrepreneur. So, of course, I love doubling back and teaching entrepreneurship because I'm going through it currently. Yeah, that's, that's pretty dope. Um, so, you know, with teaching, you know, have you kind of felt that you've been able to um, kind of reach kids that may be like you were when you were younger, that may be like um, suffer from a learning disability or like, have you come in contact with any of those yet? Like, have how is the, um, you know, your situation with handling that, those type of things? Yeah, so I, honestly, I haven't had too many students that come across. I, I actually had one last semester and, um, for, for me, having a disability and again, not having standardized testing, I think that's the, the biggest start for someone that has a dyslexia. Um, I think nowadays the technology is great, like audible. I used, to, I used to wear headphones in class when I was in fourth or fifth grade, just to listen to my teacher. And we used to have like a device that would read like a text to read. Now you have, you have audible books that read to you, you know what I mean? And I'm a big, I'm a big um, you know, advocate of, of, of audible books. So I think like the times that are changing now, you know, dyslexia is, is, it's sort of a label, but like, it's not, it's not an end all be all, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I definitely encourage those that do have learning disabilities because, you know, again, everyone learns differently and it might take longer, but ultimately, um, you know, it's, it's more or less an ability. Cause I like to think there's skills that I've gained 
from you know not caring so much about text <laughs> exactly so like do how do you um you know kind of incorporate your philosophy into your class like how is how do you um you know incorporate you know your your outlook on life your um into your class to kind of give your special twist on the material to the student yeah yeah so i think um i think one of the things is respecting everybody that has different backgrounds uh, you know, Clark is is a, a very liberal school, liberal arts school. Um, it's almost like a baby Harvard. You know, kids <laughs> got money; they come from all over the world. Uh-huh. You know, um, so I, uh, you know, just kind of being in that perspective. You know, again, just respecting everybody's viewpoints and their their background. But I think um, the biggest, I would say, the biggest philosophy or the biggest principle, aside from respect, um, hmm, that's a that's a good question. I. <laughs> I would I would say just passion, man. Like yeah. again, when class started this week, I, and I'm teaching an art of the pitch, which is more or less a sales class. I'm like, listen, before I got into entrepreneurship, I I worked as, as a sales rep, and I believed in what I was selling. I was selling renewable, renew, I was working for a renewable energies company, uh-huh. so I, I believe I believed in that because I believed that there is global warming is a thing. You know what I mean? And like we need to do something for the future. And renewable energy is the way to do it. Distributed, distributed energy is the way to do it. So although I made good money doing that, I knew it wasn't my, my, my calling. I knew it wasn't my, my purpose. But I had, I had passion for it. And that's why I was good at selling, because I had passion for it. So I would say, you know, next to, like, respecting everybody, you definitely have the passion for what you're doing in your career and what you're doing with your life. Now, um, now I know we talked about a little bit about you say that you feel like this field is kind of dominated, um, predominated, uh, predominantly um, a, a Caucasian, you know, dominated field. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think, um, you know, it's just like the access to education or do you think it's like a deeper reason and like maybe this might may not be um, an attractive job, you know, in, our, in the culture, in our culture? Are you talking about cannabis, the cannabis business? Yeah, cannabis business or, yeah. Absolutely. So at the surface, without getting too deep, is systemic racism. There's no other way to put it. Because if we look at the criminal justice system, it was designed to keep black, black and brown people down. You know what I mean? So I think uh, it becomes more, uh, it becomes deeper as we start to develop these programs and analyze why there's such a disparity that exists. But the short answer of it is systemic racism racism and it goes back to it's kind of crazy but like we talk about criminal justice we talk about police you know police police were developed after slavery was abolished yeah you know and and like we're speaking facts at this point you know that right so like their whole the whole point of them coming together was to hold down black black and brown men you know and women and keep them in control so people tend to forget about that when we talk about police brutality now you know what i mean so like so so just within that police brutality we have the criminalization of cannabis meanwhile you know you got these corporations mostly white corporations you know coming up with the funds to 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 go ahead and do this and you know figure out ways to not have to give back to those communities that have been harmed uh-huh. so um it, it gets deep but really it's it's ra- it's ra- it's living in racism we still live in racism so like now tell me um what do you think um or how do you feel as now a black individual um, fighting that fight and trying to, you know, get through these hurdles in the cannabis industry in Massachusetts? Is that something you have, you know, 
encounter encountered resistance with a lot is every day, man. <laughs> every day, dude. Yeah, it's and it can be at multiple levels because with cannabis licensing, especially here in Massachusetts, first and foremost, it is the most regulated uh, market in the United States. You know, Colorado is nothing like this. California, Oregon, you know, those states out west basically handed licenses out like hotcakes. Here is a much strenuous process. So in where local municipalities have power, and that's uh, uh, probably a lot of the hurdles that we face are with local people. So those who work in City Hall, um, you, know, uh, you know, early on dealing with local uh, real estate uh, brokers and working with uh, property owners and these different contractors that we have to, you know, kind of work with to get through licensing. So, you know, the, the problems that come up. The illustrations of the systemic racism that you talk about, right? So right. a lot of times people are like, what does that mean, systemic racism? But it's when you're trying to apply for a license, when you right. keep getting denied, when they keep changing deadlines so you can't meet them and stuff like that. Right. It's a lot trickier than just, oh, I don't like you, you're black. You feel right. me? Right. And it, it, it just, it is, it is just not like the licensing stuff. We can go back to Jim Crow. We can go back to uh, redlining and mortgages because real estate is the biggest part of cannabis. If you own real estate and it's zoned correctly, then you're, you're the ex, you know, your, your property value increases exponentially because you have cash, uh, a business with tremendous cash flow. So even going back to Jim Crow and redlining, when mortgages were not given out at the same rate to black and brown people, that we can go back and that has nothing to do with cannabis it's just yeah. more it's the financial system yeah. and that's what we're saying it's a it's all interconnected it's one system of, of systemic racism now is this um now because i'm thinking back to now how you are a black profession now mm -hmm. so is this some of the the material that you incorporate in your classes to kind of you know educate people on hey this is what's going on out here you know in these systems Absolutely. It's the exact class that I teach, which is social equity in cannabis. And it's, it's not for my undergraduate students. It's for uh, graduate students. It's under a class, uh, under uh, the professional, what is it? Professional school uh, studies in uh, at Clark. And it's basically under a uh, master's of public administration or public policy uh, yeah. program. I, I think that's dope because, you know, as, as you speak, um, you know, I, I kind of learn more, you know, about the, you know, more of the, the detailed situation of how it's going, going down out there. Um, now tell me the power you think it holds, um, in being a black professor that's saying it, you know, because if, you know, it's coming from a white person, that's something else, but you know, this is coming from the, the, when you talk about the population that's being disenfranchised, it's you. Right. How you you have the power to give this this back. So, do you kind of find any utility or you know power in that? Yeah, I would say um, for me, it's it's funny because there are businesses in the industry that like to hoard information, and they like to. Um, make it seem like they are for equity and for uh, more diversity and black and brown people in the community, but they're really not. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, being in a position of uh, being very transparent and being able to, you know, again, like give information that I'm going through like right away is important because, you know, again, people that have resources and knowledge on a certain thing, they, they, some, they don't like always like to share it, bro. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I'm like yeah. overbooked. <laughs> 
we know why that is, right? Absolutely. So I think I think it's so dope that you know I I even you know even when I'm in law class I'll be learning stuff and I'm like, yo, I want to teach this to people. Like, I I think people should know about this type of stuff. So I think the fact that you know you actually took a a, a step a, the next step and created a course is super powerful. You feel me? And I feel like definitely you know the the people in that college to to get that information but i see like you know you're able to disseminate that information you know to a to a wider you know nationwide to where somebody in you know california or somebody could to could get the same knowledge and put those type of you know initiatives into their neighborhood so you mm -hmm. kind of spreading that social impact change that you you know develop and it's crazy you say that, man, because with social media, we have the ability to do that now. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, like, when we look at our business as being a differentiator, it's really being out there and talking about these issues because a lot of these cannabis companies don't do it. You know what I mean? They All they care about is the THC content or, you know, what deals they got going on. What we say? They just care about the money, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They just care about where they check is here. Like they don't care about none of that. Uh, so I think that's I, I think that's dope. So what do you think um the top like what do you think is the biggest thing you've kind of learned from being a professor um that you kind of didn't get in your, you know, being on a job type world? That's that's great, man. So one of the biggest things is in a, it's a misconception. So as an educator, people tend to think that like you're an expert. But I, I tell my students that I'm here to learn too. Uh, honestly, I believe that every interaction, we're all connected. So like, you know, if you've never met someone before or had a certain conversation with someone, there's, there's knowledge that you can gain and share from that. So I, I thoroughly look forward to, uh, you know, teaching what I know, but then also like getting educated from my students and gaining en energy from my students and like, you know, understanding how their mind works. You know, one of the biggest things that like uh, in my class, that I, the social equity class that I had, they had such, the students had such raw questions about like what's going on in the cannabis industry. I was like, yo, your minds are so fresh that it's giving me energy. Cause I know, I know what I know, but that to order, in order to actually like teach, tell them like what I know, it has to be in a way for them to understand it. So it helps me understand it by being able to explain it to them again. And that's what people don't really realize is that when you actually teach something, you're, you're, re, you're relearning it. So, um, you know, that's, that's my favorite part about it is actually, you know, being a teacher, but learning as well. I, I, I think that's a great point. Um, and I think it actually, that's how I kind of started to study the law as, as well. You know, right. just kind of more, the more and more I explain these laws to other people, the right. more and more I kind of understand them for myself, you know, and now that's, that's a tip I got from, from your business partner, Lori, um, you know, kind of told me that. And I think it's great because I think once you're able to teach something, you right. know that you know that thing. So right. um, I think it's dope that you're able to now teach entrepreneurship you know in cannabis because you are you're a dope entrepreneur in the cannabis industry appreciate bro. that bro yeah it's all love man of course. So, like what do you say right um you know if i'm a if i'm a um you know person i could be young i could be old i'm thinking about getting into you know becoming a professor um mm -hmm. what kind of you know tips and tools or what's the biggest tool i would say that you would give me to kind of start to build my foundation with? 
Oh, man, man. So the biggest tool, um, wow, the biggest tool. I would probably say the one that comes to mind, like, at this second is, and it's interesting, and I can tell you more of the story, because when I had started teaching at Clark, I ironically started with another dude who was worked for a big corporation, a well-known corporation. I won't, I won't disclose it, so I, don't, I won't call him out. But he was there for like 25 years, a big influential player. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll have to tell you, I'll tell you another time. <laughs> Matter of fact, you know what? I'm just telling you, he worked for Adidas for 25 years. Yeah, okay. Adidas for 25 years. And um, yeah, his, his style of teaching was a lot different than mine, even though he had, he's a little bit older than me and we both came from the private sector and we were just starting off in our teaching career. But the difference I had is that I, I, I went to school from five years old. It took me six and a half years to finish college, uh, undergraduate school. And then it, it took me three years to finish graduate school. So literally from the time I was five to 26 or 27, I've been in the education system. So I understand how the organizational structure works and how to network and talk to certain people to get things done. Where if you're coming directly from a corporate world, you're like, you're rigid. You know? yeah. And like, you know what I mean? Kind of cold and black and white. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think that definitely helps us to understand the organizational structure, how, you know, the education system works, how, what the difference is between how a high school might run versus a college and figure mm -hmm. out what, where that comes into play. Cause I don't think I'd be the best, uh, high, high school teacher. Yeah. I definitely like the way that my lifestyle is, yeah. I think, you know, the better, the better, the be is more aligns with being an adjunct professor. You know what I mean? So, so you're like pretty much make sure, you know, you can adapt that you can adapt to the structure and you understand the structure that you can't go into a, a college, um, you know, or, or professor setting and expect the same, you know, things that you would in a high school. Right, right. Or a corporate world. <laughs> or the corporate, yeah, the private sector. Yeah. All right, brother. That's um. So that's that's. I think um. That's a great place to kind of you know wrap it up. I feel like is yeah. there any last kind of you know little tools or gems that you want to give to the listeners, kind of um you know to to take. Yeah, I, I probably would say that uh you know one try new things, and then two don't be afraid to uh you know go after your passion. Uh, and then the third would probably be, you don't be afraid to ask for help either. <laughs> you know, that's one of the biggest things that like, and I, again, I learned that as a nine-year-old kid from like learning, I had uh, an issue with a learning disability and then having the resources, but being able to open up to those people, talk about my feelings, uh, you know, ask for help and have that support system because, um, you know, ultimately you're going to be in a position to help other people at some, at some point in your life too. So you kind of, you, you get what you put out, you know what I mean? So if you're able to help people, then you're going to be able to get help from other people. If you're going to be able to ask for help, then you're going to be able to, uh, to give help to other people as well. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is use resources, man, because uh, the world is abundant, honestly. Yeah, man, I, th I think that's a great, I think that's a great point. Uh, a lot of people, you know, especially in the, in the, um, you know, the black culture, um, that self-autonomy, I can do it on my own, I'm going to get it on my own, um, right. idea is pretty prevalent, and it kind of leads people to distrust other people who may be, you know, genuinely trying to help them out. So I think, you know, definitely ability to identify those useful, helpful resources and use those helpful resources, you know, but give something back to those resources as well you know um, is, is dope so you know kind of you know just to, to end it on that um so like if 
anybody, you know, kind of has more questions, want to get more educated, um, kind of reach out to you. Do you have, um, you know, any ways for the listeners to, you know, kind of reach out to you? Oh, absolutely, bro. And I, I'm an open book, man. Uh-huh. Social media is all public. Uh, you can find me on, first and foremost, LinkedIn. I'm probably the easiest way to find me. Uh, Ulysses Youngblood. I'm sure it's the only one on there as of as of now that I that I'm uh, um, familiar with and then also on Instagram I saw that Ulysses yeah, Ulysses yep yeah, U-L-Y-S-S-E-S okay and then the last name's all one word Youngblood Y-L-U-N-G-B-L-O-O-D okay. and then also just Instagram is U-J Youngblood and yeah. now, those are the two easiest ways to find me all right all right, brother. So your Instagram is UJ um, Youngblood, um, and you can look you up on Ulysses Youngblood on Facebook, LinkedIn, all that. Absolutely. And um, you know, viewers could shoot you any more questions about the cannabis industry world, or you know, being a professor, you know, in, in general, right? Absolutely, entrepreneur, professor, cannabis, all that. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you having me, man. Honestly. Man, nah, man, I, I appreciate you for coming on, man, because uh, it's like I told you, um, I'm, you're the only professor I know, like, personally, <laughs> yeah. and, and, um, you know, and you're the second cannabis yeah. professor I know, personally, so <laughs> I, you're not, uh, you're the only black male, so like, I thought it was definitely important to have you on the, on the show to kind of show people, um, you know, where they could be, and I think what's so powerful about your story is what you had to go through. Like, yo, you 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 was at college, you went to Worcester, you getting beat up by the police. It sound like it's mad racist out there. Um, <laughs> you know, just being honest, you got arrested like what? You got arrested like three, four times. Like, yeah. um, you know, when a lot of people, yo, they'll, they'll have that and they'll be like, yo, it's, it's probably right. time to throw it in. You know, let me get a job working and, and make life happen. But right. you kind of, you know, took that and you did the opposite and was like, all right, I'm going to take all this, you know, adversity and um, I'm going to turn up with it, you know? So I think that is exactly why I needed to have you on this show so you could be a living example to people that it ain't over till it's over. Right. You know, till yeah. you say it's over. Um, So I think it was dope, man. So, you know, just like I said, man, thank you for coming on. Um, and you know, until next time, family, keep building. We'll see y'all next week. Peace.